So we're going to go back to uh, 2 Samuel 9 and finish up our meditation on this text, the story, as we consider the kindness of God. It was wonderful to see your vigorous uh, fellowship and enjoyment of one another um, as really an application of our morning message to see a covenant community uh, enjoying a meal and um, sharing in one another's burdens and needs and praying for one another, laughing together. This is the body of Christ. So this morning we, we considered the fact that David's intention was to show kindness to the house of Saul uh, because, number one, David is a portrait of God's kindness. God intends to show kindness to the sons of Adam because of Christ. And that informs the way that we live in covenant community. But that's just an intention, right? Like when you see a man and woman standing up at the front of a church auditorium like this and they exchange promises and commitments, the question is, hopefully nobody says this out loud, but the question is, will they make good on those promises, right? Will he, will he really love and cherish his wife as Christ loved the church? Will she really reverence her husband? Well, only time will tell. Robertson McQuilkin and his wife Muriel made those same commitments in their youth. But who would know that Muriel would suffer from Alzheimer's disease? Robertson was a well-known Bible teacher. He was a competent, able administrator. He was the president of Columbia Bible College. But in 19... Uh, March of 1990, McQuilkin announced his resignation as president of the college with these words. He says, My dear wife, Muriel, has been in failing mental health for about eight years. So far, I've been able to carry both her ever-growing needs and my leadership responsibilities at CBC. But recently, it has become apparent to me that Muriel is contented most of the time she's with me. Almost none of the time I'm away from her. It's not just discontent. She's filled with fear, even terror, that she has lost me and always goes in search of me when I leave home. Then she may be full of anger when she can't get to me. So it's clear to me, he said, that she needs me now full time. Perhaps it would help you to understand if I shared with you what I shared at the time of the announcement of my resignation in chapel. He says, the decision was made in a way 42 years ago. When I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So as I told the students and faculty, as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it. But so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic. But there's more. I love Muriel. She is a delight to me, her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, occasional flashes of that wit I used to so relish, her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continual distressing frustration. I do not have to care for her. I get to. It is a high honor to care for so wonderful a person. Robertson wrote a book relating their story. Not surprisingly, it's entitled a promise kept. Duty 
delight. Loyalty, love. That's, that's where we are in the story of David and Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel 9. David's intention is to show this kind of kindness, this kind of loving loyalty to the house of Saul. So let's pick up with uh, verse 2 with David's integrity. Because I think the question that follows from verse 1, which we spent a little bit of time considering this morning, <laughs> is will David actually follow through on his good intention? Well, only time will tell. I was talking to a friend recently. He said that they have a wealthy family member who was committed to matching whatever his daughter could raise for the purchase of her first car. Pretty sweet deal, right? Um, but you know, Sometimes when somebody mentions something like that in passing, you're not really sure if that was sort of just like, you know, off the cuff, goodwill, but are they really intending to follow through on that? Sometimes you hate to even bring it up again. Maybe that's what's happening here. Was it just a nice thought that David had? Or does he actually intend to carry through? It's one thing to have good intentions. You know, it's one thing to say, hey, pastor, um, if you ever hear of anyone in need, let me know. That sounds good. It's another thing to follow through and actually meet the needs that you become aware of. And again, I'm not really speaking to this church in particular because I don't know you, but I, I know that churches are often filled with well-intentioned people. The kind of people who feel strongly when a prayer request is mentioned, but maybe not quite strongly enough to do anything about it. Um... And I think to some extent that we have become paralyzed by the sheer amount of information that comes to us, right? I mean, you scroll through your feeds and I mean, it's just like request after request, information after information. And sometimes I think we become paralyzed by all of that information. And so then we don't do anything. So can I encourage you this, more, uh, this afternoon to fight the paralysis by just isolating one person that you can show kindness to? Just isolate one person, just one. You know, is there anyone singular that I might show the kindness of God to? Anyone. What's, for example, what's one need that you became aware of today as you interacted with your brothers and sisters here? Just, just one need. So filter through everything and just try to isolate with God's help and by the Spirit's prompting one particular person, one particular need that you can do something about. Well, David shows his integrity in this narrative by following through on his intention to show kindness to the house of Saul. And it's here that we'll pick up the pace a bit. So let me, let me go ahead and summarize. You can look at the text yourself, but let me summarize what's happening and then we'll land on verses 7 and 8. So David summons and questions Ziba. So in verse 2, we find out that at the very least, there's a servant of Saul who remains and his name is Ziba. And he was likely the manager of Saul's estate. So David repeats his question to Ziba. Is there anyone left of Saul's family that I can show the kindness of God to? So I don't know what's going through Ziba's mind at this point. Um, he knows Jonathan still has a son. But should he tell David? Uh, what are the consequences of, you know, if he doesn't tell David what he knows? Does he sense just from the way David, you know, says it, does he sense that David's intentions are good and kind? So Jonathan does have a son, uh, but interestingly enough, he's described as having been injured in both feet. 
So how did that happen? How did Jonathan's son become injured in both feet? Well, let's um, flip back to 2 Samuel 4. Just hold your finger in chapter 9. In verse 4 of 2 Samuel 4, we read, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. Notice he was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. So he's five years old when his father dies. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Okay. Now in this context, that information explains why after Saul's death, his son, uh, excuse me, after Saul's son Ishbosheth is murdered, why Jonathan's son is not made king. First of all, he's just a child. Secondly, he's crippled. All right, that brings us to verses four through six. And David bringing Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, to Jerusalem. Now, I wonder um, what David thought and how he felt when he found out that his best friend had a son remaining. The text doesn't say. But he does inquire about where he is, and Ziba tells him he's in Lodebar. So we have verse 5, King David bringing Mephibosheth to Jerusalem. You know, and the, the, the text, as, as is often the case with the biblical narrative, is very sparse and very efficient in its recording of the details. But, you know, you wonder what that whole interchange, there was a lot of stuff that went um, under the water here. What was that whole interchange like? Mephibosheth, you're being summoned by King David. Well, why? He wants to show you kindness on behalf of your father, Jonathan. And we don't really know what Jonathan may have told his son, Mephibosheth, about David. Remember, he's five when Jonathan dies. So we don't know what Mephibosheth is thinking in terms of how he feels. Uh, Some have speculated that he could have been around 21 to 23 years of age at this particular point. But imagine what that trip was like from Lodabar to Jerusalem. You know, what's going through Ziba's mind? What's going through Mephibosheth's mind as, you know, as they ride in the king's limousine? I mean, basically, the first thing David says to him in verse 7 is, don't be afraid. So, I mean, that gives you some sense of what he was likely feeling at the time. This, this could be the best day of his life. This could be the last day of his life. It's all up to David and whether he's a man of integrity and whether or not he really does intend to follow through on his desire to show covenant loyalty to Mephibosheth for the sake of Jonathan. So in verse 6, we have his introduction and uh, response. Notice that when Mephibosheth comes to David, he's introduced as the son of Jonathan, yay, and the son of Saul, Mm. Right? He, so, so he's the perfect match for David's intention. But, but imagine being brought before the new king as the son of Saul. Maybe Mephibosheth cringed a little bit. All, all he could hear was, son of your worst enemy. Well, we don't know if he cringed, but we do know that he falls face down on the ground and he pays homage to King David. And perhaps his only hope was that he was not only the son of Saul, but that he was the son of Jonathan. 
You know, I think sometimes we may have similar fears and concerns as we think about being transported, summoned into the presence of God through death. And perhaps there's some sense of anxiety or some sense of fear when we think about ourselves standing before God. We, we've heard the gospel. We've heard the good news. We know that God is intent on showing us kindness because of Jesus. But we also know that we're sons of Adam. We also know that we deserve punishment. And our only hope in that day is our connection to the Son of God. That He is our brother by faith. And that God will look favorably on us for Jonathan's sake. For Jesus' sake. Verses 7 to 10, David shows kindness to Mephibosheth. This is the resolution of the story. And David gives this comforting reassurance to him at the beginning of verse 7. He says, there's no need to fear. And he reiterates his desire, his intention to show kindness, loving loyalty for his father's sake. That's the third time we've seen this in the one chapter. No wonder the message of Scripture is replete with these do not be afraids. How often do we need to hear this reassurance? Don't be afraid. God's intention for you is to do good because of Christ. There's a graciousness to David's approach that is very calming to a troubled, anxious heart. There's a warm personal tone uh, that's even communicated by the text. I won't take the time to look at it, but it's interesting that in verses uh, two through five, David's referred to as the king. And then if you look at verses six through eight, he's referred to simply as David. I don't want to make too much out of that. It's just interesting that there's this shift, this noticeable shift from King David to David. There's a personal, warm, gracious tone and manner about David reflecting the kindness of God. So if we put the pieces together, here's what Mephibosheth is, um, is, is going to enjoy as we move to David's generous promises. Here we find out for the first time what exactly David had in mind. Verse um, 8, I will restore, notice, all your grandfather Saul's fields and you will always eat meals at my table. Wow. So here's what Jonathan is going to enjoy because of David's covenant loyalty to Jonathan. Peace, don't be afraid. Whatever you thought you deserved and were going to get in my presence, do not fear. You're not going to get it. Property or inheritance. I will restore to you all the land of, your Saul, of Saul, your father. So he's going to possess all the fields of Saul. Now remember, Saul was the king. I'm sure this was a sizable inheritance. Position. Honor. You shall eat at my table always. And if you just glance down at verse 10 later, Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. So peace and prosperity, inheritance and position and honor and exaltation, these generous promises coming from the Davidic king. Now, again, if we're thinking in terms of the whole Bible, those sound very similar to a lot of new covenant promises, don't they? You think about Romans 5, which we just read earlier. Since we've been justified by faith, we have what with God? We have peace with God, reconciliation. Once at odds, once enemies, now reconciled through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
for the sake of Jonathan, for the sake of Jesus, right? Romans 8.1, we read that earlier this morning. Drew read it for us. This, there is therefore now no, what? Death sentence, okay? Do not be afraid. That's not what's going to happen to you because of Christ. God is going to show covenant loyalty, loyalty to you because of Christ. There's no condemnation. Do not be afraid. Romans 8, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. 1 Peter 1, we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading that is kept in heaven for you. Imagine what, that's, imagine what that inheritance is like. I'll bet you it puts Saul's fields to shame. And remember what Jesus told his disciples in Luke 22, I assign to you a kingdom. Remember that? I assign to you a kingdom, and I can't remember if I read this part, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's really remarkable. Peace and, and prosperity, inheritance, um, and, and this wonderful, wonderful position, eating and drinking at my table. These are the great and precious promises that, that represent the kindness of God to his enemies because of Jesus Christ. There's such an abundance of grace here. Based on the covenant that David made with Jonathan in 1 Samuel 20, it, remember, it would have been enough for David to simply spare Mephibosheth's life. Just don't cut off my descendants, David. But David goes way beyond that as God does. Like, wouldn't it be great if God, I mean, it would be great if God just didn't hold us responsible for our sins and didn't execute us. Like, that would be wonderful. But God goes way over the top and gives us all of these spiritual blessings. Like, listen to the wording of Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Right? Blessing upon blessing piled up on top of one another because of Jesus. This is the abundance of God's kindness, his loyal love. And you see here Mephibosheth's humble response, verse 8. I mean, honestly, like if you were Mephibosheth, what would you be thinking if you heard these generous promises? Did I just hear that correctly? And I think we get a sense of how Mephibosheth feels in verse 8 when he says, what is your servant that you take an interest in a dead dog like me? Can you think of a song that we sang in the morning service that reflects that sort of wonder and amazement? How can it be? How, how in the world can it be? What is your servant that you take an interest in a dead dog like me? He sees himself as contemptible, maybe because of his deformity, perhaps because he saw son. Regardless, he doesn't see himself worthy of this kindness. And none of us are, are we? None of us are worthy of God's kindness. Paul tells it straight in Ephesians 2 when he tells our story, dead in trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, living in the passions of our flesh, by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, and we fall on our face 
uh, we fall on our uh, knees and we cover our faces and we say, who are we that God would take an interest in a dead dog like myself? We feel like Paul at the end of Romans 7, wretched man that I am. But God, but God, being rich in mercy, it's interesting that when the translators, when the, when the translators of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when they chose a word as the equivalent of hesed in the Hebrew Old Testament, they chose this particular word, mercy, right? But God being rich in mercy, steadfast love, loyal love, covenant-keeping love, because of the great love with which he loved us. So it's not just a duty kind of thing. There's duty and there's also delight. Even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us in heavenly places in Christ that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches, so many you can't measure them, of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? Someone has said, we went from face down at the king's feet to head up at the king's table. Face down at the king's feet, but God lifts up our head and seats us at his table. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. So awe, humility, thanksgiving, gratitude, all of these are right responses to God's overwhelming kindness, but not everybody responds rightly to God's kindness. If you flip over to 1 Samuel 10, this is where this next chapter fits into the, to the picture. 1 Samuel chapter 10. You'll see a negative example where David's kindness is not received humbly. It's not enjoyed. It's spurned. And we'll see the consequences of that. What happens when you reject the kindness of the Davidic king? God's anointed. Verse 1, the king of the Ammonites, Nahash, dies. So Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. This is 1 Samuel 10. Or 2 Samuel. I'm sorry. Did I, I said 1 Samuel. I'm so sorry. Yeah. <clears throat> it's, the, uh, it's the food, right? It's processing. <laughs> By the way, you're all very kind to be here um, and to, to be listening so intently this afternoon after eating. This is 2 Samuel 10. And uh, verse 1, the king of the Ammonites dies. His son reigns in his place. And David says, verse 2, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. Interesting, right? The ESV translators use the word loyally. It's actually the same word translated kindness in chapter 9. Remember I said there are two components to the Hebrew word hesed which makes it a little bit difficult to translate into English, into one word, right? There's the component of love. There's the component of kindness. But there's also the component of what? Loyalty. So here the ESV translators are stressing loyalty, but other translations have kindness. It's the same word. All that to say, basically what we have in in chapter 10 is a repeat performance from David in one sense. Um... Is there anyone of the house of Nahash that I may show kindness to 
in this case, for Nahash's sake, because he dealt kindly with me. Of course, there's his son who became king. Now, we don't know all the details here, but Nahash ruled over Ammon since all, of, all the way from Saul's early years, and Saul was one of Nahash's enemies. So some speculate that Nahash may have become an ally of David in some of those years when Saul was pursuing David. You know, maybe he helped David at some point when Saul was tracking him down. Um, they may have even entered into some kind of formal agreement, some kind of covenant. We don't know. But we do know that Nahash showed kindness or loyalty to David, and then David feels an obligation to show kindness to his son in response. By the way, footnote, um, God, God's people are not the only ones who can show this, right? There is such a thing as common grace, and there is a demonstration of this sort of covenant loyalty, even among the part of those who are not God's people. Nahash was a pagan king, but hopefully when God's people demonstrate it or show it, they recognize it as sourced in God. And their intention in exercising it and expressing it is to bring glory to the God who is characterized by this. Okay, that's it. In this case, um, David's kindness to Hanan looked like consolation at the loss of his father. It was a nice gesture. Uh, so some would stress more the loyal part here, saying David is simply fulfilling some kind of obligation. Perhaps even he's motivated by purely political reasons. But I don't think we can rule out the fact that whenever Nah whatever Nahash did for David, it's very possible that that endeared David's heart to him, and that David's act was not just a formality done out of obligation, but out of kindness, loyalty, and love. Either way, verse 2 is what ties, I think, chapter 10 to chapter 9. In both chapters, David is intent on showing God's kindness. In chapter 9, it's kindness to express to an Israelite. Chapter 10, it's kindness expressed to an outsider, outside the covenant community. So put together in the words of one author, David, David is a hesed-doing king, <laughs> both domestically, chapter 9, and internationally, chapter 10. Just like God's kindness in the gospel is for the Jew first, but aren't you glad it's also for the Greek? Verse 3, Hanid's advisors question David's integrity. They feel like he has ulterior motives and that what he was actually doing was spying on them for the purpose of overthrowing them. So they completely humiliate David's servants which results in all-out war between the Ammonites and the Syrians that they hired as mercenary troops. But when all the dust settles, okay, you can read through that chapter later. When all the dust of chapter 12, 10 settles, everybody's fleeing from David and his army. And you see, the Ammonites are fleeing and the Syrians are fleeing. Everybody's fleeing from David and his army. And the kings who were previously subject to the Syrians are now under Israel's control. They're making peace. Look at the end of the chapter. They're making peace with Israel. They're becoming the subjects of Israel. And nobody wants to hang out with the Ammonites anymore. In other words, basically what you have here in chapter 10 is, is almost like a regionalized illustration of Psalm 2. Okay, Would you take a minute with me and go to Psalm 2? <clears throat> What we have here in 2 Samuel 10 is 
a, almost like a specific case study of Psalm chapter 2. Um, if you look at the opening verses of Psalm 2, the kings of the earth are doing what? They're, yeah, they're coming together in a coalition like the Ammonites and the Syrians to throw off the rule of Yahweh and his anointed king. Okay, in this case, historically, it would be David, first of all. And the Lord is not impressed, verse 4, or intimidated by their insurrection. Why not? Because of the covenant or decree that he has entered into with his son, the king. Verse 7. What did Yahweh promise the anointed king? He promised him the raging nations as his inheritance and the ends of the earth as his possession. But what happens if they don't submit? The same thing we see in Second Samuel 10, right? They will, be, they will be shattered and scattered to pieces with a rod of iron by the anointed king. And the psalm as wisdom literature comes to a conclusion in verses 10 through 12. Look at that with me. Now, therefore, here's the conclusion. O kings, so actually this is addressed to them. Be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, like Mephibosheth, who does homage before David, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is kindled quickly. Blessed are all those who do what? Who take refuge in him. So as, as we have seen, God's heart to the world for the world is this. Is there anyone of the house of Adam to whom I can show kindness, covenant loyalty for the sake of Jesus, my son. But Hanan's, you know, I, I think sometimes we're like Hanan's advisors and not everybody sees God's intentions. Not everybody hears the gospel the same way. And some people question God's intentions as not kind or not good. They see, they see the invitation to come and be part of his kingdom as a restraint, as a restriction, as a band or fetter that they've got to throw off. It's not good news. God does not have our best interest in mind. And so they revolt, and so they're crushed. But it doesn't have to be that way. I think that's the point of the contrast when you put 1 Samuel 9 and 10 up against each other side by side. Chapter 9 is a beautiful portrait of how lovely it is to take refuge in the king's kindness. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. When we humble ourselves and receive the kindness, we experience peace and provision and protection and position. He says to us, don't be afraid. He says to us, come, sit and eat at my table as one of my sons. He says to us, to the meek, inherit the earth. Everything that was lost by Saul, or in, this, in our case, everything that was lost by Adam. Inherit the earth. How beautiful. And I think that's why those opening illustrations about Benjamin Warfield and Robertson McQuilkin are so inspiring to us because we all long to be in relationships like that, to be secure and loved. But we're often disappointed. We're often let down, unfortunately, by the people around us. And again, if you keep reading the account of David, in just one chapter, chapter 11, David is going to fail miserably and become an illustration of disloyalty. 
So the point of 2 Samuel 9 and 10 is not to look at David as the ultimate example. Yes, he is a hesed doing king, but an imperfect one. An imperfect one that points us forward to one of his descendants who would fulfill the kindness of God expressed in 2 Samuel 7 in the Davidic covenant. Jesus, the Messiah. He is a hesed doing king and he will never fail or disappoint you. Never. I challenge you, ransack the Gospels. See if you find one instance of Jesus ever being disloyal to God or disloyal to the mission that God gave him to do. Blessed, blessed are all those who take refuge. Do you want to be like Mephibosheth? Or do you want to be like the Ammonites and the Syrians? But remember, God's kindness, his intention is to show kindness to insiders and outsiders. So that's what Mephibosheth is going to do. He's going to take refuge in King David's kindness and promises. And it's, a, it's what makes it such a sweet and lovely story. Because it mirrors um, our experience of God's kindness to us in Christ. In verses 9 through 11, David details his plans. He specifies what's going to happen. Mephibosheth is going to inherit all that belonged to Saul and his family. Verse 9, chapter 9. Ziba, his sons and his servants are to work the ground for Mephibosheth and bring in the crops so he has food to eat. You know, I was wondering how Ziba and company felt about that. <laughs> Mephibosheth is always to eat at David's table. What was that like? Just, just try to imagine that, visualize that for a second in your mind. What was that like for this son of Saul, son of Jonathan, to this, this, this crippled boy to come in and to eat at David's table like one of the king's sons. Pretty cool. And then really the outcome of the story, Mephibosheth, uh, I was praying that I'd be able to say that today, uh, <laughs> eats at David's table. Ziba agrees. And um, verse 11 records the beautiful, amazing outcome of the story. We also see that Mephibosheth had a son, Micah. I wonder if that's there or not, just, you know, really as another testimony of grace, whose line is continuing? The house of Saul. A possible threat. Um, it's not customary to do that, but, but when you're under a covenant-keeping king, when you're under the Davidic king and his kindness, then then your life and lineage flourish. And then he has servants, verse 12. He lives in Jerusalem. And then one last note. Um, Look at how the account ends. After the whole story is wrapped up and the outcome is communicated, we read these words, okay? Now he was lame in both his feet. That's how it ends. Now, he was lame in both his feet. Why do you think the narrative ends that way? After everything has been told. Resolution, outcome. Well, let me, let me suggest a possibility here. Go back to Second Samuel 5. I don't think it's accidental. I don't think it's just a narrator slip to end the way he did by pointing us back to Mephibosheth's lameness. 
So in chapter 5, David is an anointed king of Israel, and for seven years he reigns from Hebron. But verses 6 to 10 record his invasion of the Jebusite, uh, Jebusite city of Jerusalem. What you want to notice there as you look at those verses is how cocky they are. And they say to David in verse 6, even the blind and lame will ward you off. Okay, David, you're not getting in the city. Even the blind and lame will ward you off. Well, of course, David did overtake the city. Look at verse 8. Look at what he says. Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind. Now, I don't know, you should have like quotation marks. You know, it's like air quotes. Um, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, right? Going back to the arrogant, cocky statement, sarcasm of the Jebusites, who are hated by David's soul, the lame and the blind. Therefore, therefore it is said, the blind and lame shall not what? Come into this house. Where is this house? Jerusalem. In other words, it became proverbial. It became a proverb to speak of the blind and lame as David's hated enemies. In light of the Jebusite sarcasm in Jerusalem. Now go back to chapter 9. Take a look at the last verse, verse 13 again. What what does the narrative stress as we leave this account to transition into chapter 10? What's, what's the stress? Mephibosheth lives in Jerusalem, the Jebusite city, for he always ate at the king's table. Now, he was lame in both feet. Now, you can go think about that. Be Berean, search the scriptures for yourself. But I think there are two things that are highlighted in chapter 9 about Mephibosheth. Number one, he was lame. Verse 3, verse 13. The other thing that's highlighted about Mephibosheth is he was the son of Saul and he was the son of Jonathan. What's going on here? I think in light of the proverb of chapter 5 and in light of the lineage of Mephibosheth as the son of Saul, David is showing kindness to his enemy. There's an enemy in Jerusalem Not just in Jerusalem, but at the king's table. But because of Jonathan and because of loyal love, Mephibosheth is not destroyed. He is welcomed and given every imaginable blessing and honored by the king. Would you turn with me to Romans 5, the passage that we read earlier together. I don't know, my mind went pretty quickly to this passage in Paul's letter to, to the church at Rome. <clears throat> Look at verse 6. I think we read down through verse 6 earlier. While we were still what? Weak, helpless. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one will dare to even die. But God shows his love 
for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Weak, helpless, sinful enemies. Those are the ones, Ephesians 2 that are raised up because of Christ and seated in heavenly places with Christ. God says, is there anyone of the house of Adam, sinful, weak, helpless, enemies of mine? Is there anyone that I may show kindness to because of Christ? And our meditation uh, this afternoon, really, I just want to encourage us to receive that kindness in humility like Mephibosheth And then to think strategically, think carefully about how we can display and radiate that kindness, not just to insiders, not just within the covenant community, though that's our priority initially, but how can we show and extend God's loving kindness to outsiders? One more passage. You guys okay? One more passage. Okay, Titus 3. This is the passage that... (laughs) You guys picked all the passages that I was going to turn to. We'll end here. Titus 3, Paul says, remind them, because Titus is left in Crete to instruct Uh, the Christians there, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Well, what kind of good work is he thinking about? Verse 2, don't speak evil of people. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. Some translations have kind there, to be kind. And to show perfect courtesy or gentleness toward how many people? All people. All people. Universal courtesy. Okay, think about that in relationship to your workplace. Now, why? What's the basis on which Timothy can really press these believers to live this way? Here's the explanation, verse 3. Four, we ourselves once were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. Sounds like a despicable, <laughs> a despicable group of people. Sound like anybody you know? Sound like anybody you work with? Sound like anybody that lives across the street? But actually, what Paul is saying is, that's what you were like. That that was you, pre-conversion. I'm telling you to show courtesy and gentleness and kindness to everyone because you once were, but, verse 4, when the goodness... And loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us. And he didn't do it because of works done by us in our righteousness. It was according to his... There's that word. The Greek word that is the equivalent of hesed. Mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So 
not just sparing our life, not just saving us from condemnation, but giving us all of these blessings, including the Holy Spirit. And when he gave us the Holy Spirit, he didn't just give us the Holy Spirit, he poured the Holy Spirit out on us lavishly. And then he made us heirs, inheritors. Why? Why God's kindness to sinners like us? Why God's kindness to the crippled and lame spiritually? Why God's kindness to a dead dog? Why God's kindness to his enemies? For the sake of Jesus. Because of Christ. We enjoy these wonderful blessings. And that becomes, my friends, the basis, the, the inspiration, the, the empowerment, uh, the incentive for displaying God's kindness to the world. So David's integrity in demonstrating kindness to Mephibosheth is a reflection of God's kindness to his enemies. It's a kindness that must be received humbly. And if it is, it will be a wonderful, sweet, warm experience. And it's to be extended universally. Let's pray. Father, thank you.